0: And welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. In this episode, we'll be discussing Chapter 3 from our book, Customer Satisfaction.
1: So, Chapter 3 is about methodology essentials. In Chapter 2, we sort of highlighted the evidence of, of customer satisfaction. What we're really looking at now is the essentials behind it and Sometimes this is a little bit subtle because the essentials are the things that really make a difference. The first thing that the sort of the book um, starts with. Keep in mind this wonderful book was written in 2007. Is that customer satisfaction at a national level is, is static. But um, we have some more information um, on that, much more up to date information, don't we, Stephen?
0: Yeah, thanks, Grace. So, so I, I, I thought we should update that, given the you know, the charts in the book finishing in, in sort of two thousand and six and two thousand and seven. Uh, so I went and, and got the the latest results from UKCSI, um, which is available from the Institute of Customer Services website. If you want to have a look at that, uh, and I also got the the latest ACSI, the American Customer Satisfaction Index, um, and looking at the, the kind of long term trends on those. Both of them have actually been trending up. So, so the book starts with a with a kind of, i was going to say assertion, but but, but with a, a statement of fact, really, that you know, at that point in the mid-2000s, customer satisfaction didn't really seem to have been, in the long term, improving. It had gone up a bit and down a bit, but but net, it hadn't really moved anywhere. Um, looking on now from the sort of mid-2000s to, to where we are in 2018, both UK CSI and ACSI seem to have trended up since that point in the mid-2000s, Again, with the odd up and down, the odd dip. Um, but, but overall, the, the trend in both seems to have been up, perhaps now beginning to plateau. So you know, if we look at UK SSI, for example, you know, it, it's had a, a recent dip and then it's you know, reached a high a couple of, of waves ago, so a year ago now, uh, and since then has, has had a sort of slight dip again. So it does, does seem to have kind of plateaued. And, and a similar sort of pattern looks, to, looks have applied in, in America as well.
1: Yeah, and, you know, questionably, over the last decade, you know, the focus on the customer has increased. Mm. Um, You think of the number of surveys you can fill in now. Every time you go on a website, you'll get a survey. Um, How many companies now have adopted, you know, we are customer-centric. The customer is at the heart of what we do. Um, Customer charters, customer pledges. There's no doubt the importance of having satisfied customers, the concept is much more embedded now than it was than 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 it was ten years ago. Um why do you think it still isn't improving at such a, a rapid rate, given we've seen some improvement? What what mm. what, what do you think is, is now limiting limiting it? It's an
0: interesting point that because yeah, it certainly has trended up a little bit, but, but now seems to have stagnated. And, and interestingly, where it's stagnated is at a level, um, you know, let's say kind of high 70s, maybe low 80s occasionally. It's at a level that I would describe to a client who got a score around there as kind of, you know, good but not great, fine, you're yeah. one of my quite good suppliers, <laughs> I'll buy from you again. It's not wow! It's amazing, and I think that's and that's partly because it's an average. So behind that average, there are some great organizations and, and some not very good organizations. But I think it is also indicative of the fact that you know, ten years of steady work, picking the low hanging fruit, you know, addressing the things that are big problems for customers, will get you to be quite good. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of big or- organizations have done now. They are pretty good at what they do pretty consistently most of the time for most customers.
1: And even having a rather crude um, measure of customer feedback, whether it's just verbatim comments coming in or listening to customers, it's certainly enough to identify that low-hanging fruit. You know, If customers aren't satisfied with delivery performance, it's probably quite obvious to an organisation with or without a customer survey, even with some of the internal KPIs, it won't take a genius to to make them realise that customers aren't happy when things don't arrive on time, are part-delivered, are late, or are damaged. So Mm. I think some of that low-hanging fruit has been addressed, because people are understanding customers are important, and perhaps that moves us up to a score of eight out of 10. Mere satisfaction might be one of the What what one of the phrases and something that Stephen and I are going to talk about a little bit is you know eight out of ten compared to nine out of ten you know is eight out of ten enough Mm.
0: really I think that's exactly right Greg and I think where the argument that the book makes is that satisfaction isn't moving for one of three reasons either people don't understand you know why it's so important uh, and quite exactly what it is or they don't have a very good measure of it they don't have a good survey in place. Or they do have a good measure, and they're not doing anything about it. And I think those conclusions are still broadly accurate, even yeah. if we accept that actually satisfaction has improved. People have done the easy stuff. But still, most of them aren't taking that next step, the sort of good to great step. And again, I think that, you know, the, the question comes back to, is that because their survey isn't right? Or is it because they have got the information, and they're not doing anything with it? And I think it, you know, those two things are still weaknesses in, in a lot of people's surveys.
1: Yeah, they've got to be the two dominant, the, you know, the two dominant um, reasons behind it. It, um, it I, I just sort of find it really, really sort of interesting in terms of the whole, um, you know, the ability to sort of um, take action because um, it, it, it's. I sometimes really feel a bit nervous about saying this to customers that that there isn't a quick fix when you go to a conference and someone says we changed this and our net promoter score went from a right up to b in a matter of 12 months you assume the person is telling the truth (laughs) but you think that's not typical that's an unusual circumstance And if we look at a lot of our clients, particularly those who've been with us for a decade, when did customer satisfaction really start taking off? It's probably two to three years in the process. And it's hard to say to someone, you know, this is about changing culture, this is about changing things, this is about customers noticing that change has happened and changing their opinions and attitudes about that so they behave in a different way. We'll come back to that in a minute. And you know what? You might not see much happen for two to three years of hard work, because <laughs> it is hard work. But you know that that is, that you know is, is, you know is the truth. And I do think that one of the reasons, perhaps, why why customer satisfaction surveys why well, why it's grown, but perhaps we're at the next challenge of of the next plateau at the moment, is it does require a medium term commitment to it, not just a short term commitment hey let's fix deliveries that's going to make our customers yeah. less dissatisfied, which it will do, but then it now requires a little bit more understanding of the benefits because it's now more a medium term than a short term um, investment
0: yep and I think I agree with <laughs> with all of that um, one sort of slight um, uh, kind of nuance I guess to, to add on to it is sometimes when you see those kind of transformative differences in score that can happen with an event driven a transactional survey yeah uh, because it is possible to kind of revolutionize that overnight at least on paper it's you know harder than that in practice relationship surveys are always going to take a couple of years for for customers to really believe that things have have changed
1: yeah Um, I think we should invite our friend Tom Peters into the
0: room because, do you know what, Stephen? Perception is reality. Perception (laughs) certainly is reality. Yeah, That's a quote that we've probably already used in the podcast multiple times (laughs) and and we certainly use quite a lot. Um, And I think what I really like about it, uh, well, there's lots of things I like about it, but one thing I I really like about it is that it emphasises that customer satisfaction isn't about service quality, it's not about product quality. It's about how a customer feels. It's about the emotions and the feelings and the thoughts inside the customer's head. Um, and that's something that it, it, it's, it sounds like such a simple thing, but it's a sort of piece of mental judo that completely changes the way you think about how you improve the customer experience.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the sort of Little promises that I made when we started this podcast is I'm not going to just read chunks of the book, but there is a really good sort of sentence mm. that I, that I, I think sums up that sort of mental judo, and it you know it's where Tom Peters is emphasising that whilst customer judgments may be maybe idiosyncratic, human, emotional, end of the day irrational, you know and fundamentally just wrong, <laughs> you know they aren't accurate, they aren't the truth. However, they are the attitudes on which customers base their future behaviours. And as Peter says, you know, you know, the possibility that customer judgments are unfair, because they are unfair, isn't really much consolation when they've taken their business elsewhere. Mm. So it does take a maturity of an organisation to sort of say, okay, if that's what they think, that's what they think. And I certainly think some of our clients have been able to mentally switch that position and say, well, do you know what? If it's perception is reality, this is quite an easy win because it's a communication message. Rather than doing anything, we need, to, I'm not, we need to align a perception. Okay, that's not always that easy, but it's certainly communication rather than action, which in many
0: scenarios is, is easier. Absolutely. I think for me, that perception is reality, once you, once you get away from bickering about is this true or is it not true, it opens up two ways to improve that, that you just haven't seen before. One of those is why do customers think this if it's not true? Well, you know, and maybe we're wrong. Maybe yeah. we need to dig into whether our understanding is right. What signals are we sending them? Why are they saying that? How did they come to that conclusion? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the second one is what, what could we do in the design of the experience or in, in literal sort of communications to affect how customers feel and think about it and yeah those are two great ways to to find things to do to improve and to go about improving that you just can't do if you treat uh, surveys naively uh, as trying to establish the truth of what happened
1: yeah would very much link into customer journey mapping as as, absolutely a very modern modern phrase that really talks about the same things I think in terms of, of sort of a fundamental and I think this is a key moment to grasp, is the difference between attitudes, behaviours and um, organisational success. And I think people often use the phrase satisfaction and loyalty as a single phrase, where indeed they're both different things. So fundamentally, you know, for an organisation to be more successful, it wants customers to behave in a way that's advantageous to it, such as Buy more, become less price sensitive, recommend more, not look at the competition. And if, you, and if you can get customers to behave in that way, that's really good for the bottom line. Now, getting someone to behave in a certain way is a really, really powerful thing. And the way you get them to behave in a certain way is how you treat them, how you make them feel their attitude towards you. And that's really then satisfaction. The theory and the reality being that if you make them really satisfied and happy, they're going to behave in that way that I've described, which is advantageous to the business. But equally, if you made them dissatisfied or unhappy, they're going to behave in a different sort of way. Complain a lot, tell others, become a costly customer to service and become someone that behaves in a way that's unadvantageous to to the organisation. And I think being able to... Um, another one of your mental judos, to split out satisfaction from loyalty and see that one links to the other, the attitude links to the behaviour, helps clarify what you're trying to do. Yeah, Absolutely, I think
0: the point you're making, and, and I completely agree, is that... There's a lot of agreement going on here <laughs> no, one, one day we'll, we'll get into an argument, but uh, maybe in a, a second, I'll, I've got a grenade to throw at you in a second. But, um, so cust- customer behaviours make us money, That's, I think almost everyone would agree with that. Uh, our befa- behaviours affect how customers feel, I think almost everyone would agree with that, um, at least if they're kind of assuming customers are vaguely rational about anything. The only point of, of question therefore might be do, do customer attitudes and feelings affect customer behaviours? If we accept that, then we've got to accept that whole kind of service profit chain principle, the way we treat customers affects how they feel, which affects how they behave, which affects whether we make money.
1: Absolutely, um, yeah.
0: But being clear on the distinction between attitudes and behaviours is crucial to understanding how that operates. Uh, and I think that's that's why it's helpful to, to just really be clear on satisfaction an attitude, you know, retention or referrals, that's a behaviour. Here's my... Uh, Potentially provocative question, is, <laughs> net is net promoter score measuring an attitude or a behaviour? Is net promoter score
1: measuring an attitude or a behaviour? Well, it's trying to measure um, recommendations, so you'd have to say it's a behaviour. And um, the author of that would link it to loyalty, so um, I'd be saying it's trying to measure a behaviour.
0: Yeah. I feel I'm being set up as I was sort of hoping you'd say that, because I, I don't think that. I, I think it's measuring an attitude, but it's pretending to measure a behaviour. And right. that's that's one of the questions I have with some of the assertions around Net Promoter Score. So I think if we were being um, if we're trying to develop a new category, we might say it, it's a behavioural intention. So it's, it's not exactly how do I feel, oh, and it's I not like exactly it. what have I done. I like it. It's what am I planning to do or going to do. I didn't invent that, by the way, that's... that's, that's but, but no, I hadn't that's, assumed you had, That's Steven. an existing <laughs> category of, of stuff. Um, so it's it kind of sits in the middle, doesn't it? And I think that's one of the reasons that you know, one of the reasons it's really popular is because it is leaning towards the behaviour, um, which which is...
1: Nearer the end point that people are looking c- it's for. It's clear yeah. that it has a yeah. financial
0: benefit to the business, and that's that's why it's popular with the board. But in reality, I think it's an attitude, not a behaviour. And I think, you know, understanding it cannot quite be an actual measure of behaviour is important to understand what it can and can't do. Yeah, I think that's... A good point, really, well made, yeah, yeah, that that
1: does make a lot of sense. Um, In in terms of um, one thing that that I thought was interesting in in, in the book, and I thought, oh, I wonder if that's dated, is this idea about why companies don't act. There's a whole bit on the methodology that we will spend a lot of time talking about over over forthcoming podcasts, but it, it was a point it made about competition, um, there are some organisations that have hostage customers, or, or ones where it's difficult to move, or the amount of effort put into re- in, into changing supplier just doesn't just doesn't you know w- warrant it, and we will perhaps see some evidence of that when we look at the sectors within the UK C- CSI. You know the types of sectors that are at the bottom, are perhaps more some of the traditional, the utility sectors, some of the public Mm. sectors, and certainly those that are at the top of the league table tend to be the more highly competitive um, sectors. But the bit which I thought would be interesting just to chat about a, a, a little bit was where the book says about too much competition, and particularly if competition is getting quicker, smarter, that you're looking for a quick return, whereas ten minutes ago we were saying this is a little bit about having a medium-term
0: vision. Yeah, I, I absolutely, I, I'd forgotten that bit of the book until we came to reread it for the podcast and I'd I, I noticed the same bit, I thought that's really interesting, I, I you know, talk a lot about the problems of too little competition and people yeah. becoming complacent, I don't often think about the flip side and, and it's very true isn't it, if you think about really cutthroat competitive markets. They have a tendency to become very price focused, and I guess the debate is: is that because of customers? Are are customers you know, are customers getting the, 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 the market they deserve, if you like it, Yeah. You know, is it because they show no loyalty? They just f- switch on price that they've created these hyper competitive cutthroat markets, or? Is it a failure of imagination from suppliers in those markets to actually provide any differentiation in terms of service or product? Mm.
1: Industries that have price comparison websites in them you know, probably um, perpetuate this issue as well. How difficult to bring service and quality of service into that equation when the industry itself would be saying it's all about price, our products are all the same, mm. even though the products aren't. All the same
0: yeah I definitely think there's you know the worst thing that can happen to, to uh, you know a company any market really is for that market to become seen to be commoditized you know whether or not it really is is again perception is reality if customers don't see any differentiation mm-hmm. then there isn't any um, and I think yeah it's something we should we should probably think more about does that kind of intense competition prevent you from being able to make the kind of long-term yeah. loyalty strategy that, that that we're always trying to encourage companies yeah. to adopt. I hope not, and I hope it's possible for at least some customers in most markets to see the value of a fundamentally better product, better experience. Um, there yeah. are certainly some markets where uh, I, I'm still awaiting you know, the company that tries to set itself apart in that way. And you, you think perhaps of financial services naturally, yeah. I mean, do the likes of Metro Bank, you know, it, is that a potential disruptor trying to do something on customer experience rather than on price?
1: Certainly set up in that way, mm-hmm. certainly positioned itself in that way. Is it way. working?
0: It's the question, isn't it?
1: Yeah. The initial feedback they would say is yes. <laughs> Time will be, you know, a, you know, a better judge of that. Mm. So, rotate 8 out of 10 on satisfaction. Is that good enough? Is that going to make bottom line improvements? What sort of conversations does that lead us into? Should I spend a load of money trying to move us up to nine out of ten? The big boss man says.
0: Well, I think that's a, a... probably yes, but we need the data to answer that, don't we? But I, I was pleased to see you flip back a page there because I was worried <laughs> you'd, you'd gone past this section of the chapter. And I think this might be one of the most important bits of the chapter. Um, so I think clued in by the fact I can see what page you're looking at. I I think what you're looking at here is the non-linear relationship between satisfaction and and loyalty. That's a curve I'm looking at. Yes, that's (laughs) what you're looking at. Um, So it it, it, it actually ties in with this idea of competition. So according to, to a load of work that Harvard Business School did, you know, back in the probably late 90s into the early 2000s, depending on different markets, you will see different shapes of relationship between essentially performance, satisfaction, and loyalty in terms of retention. So how good do you have to be in order to secure a loyal customer? Um, Or 100% share of wallet, if you want to think of it in in kind of non-retention terms. Um, And their argument would be in a lot of markets, you get sort of um, disproportionate benefit for having a very, very high level of satisfaction. So in other words, if you're scoring eight out of 10, probably several of your competitors are scoring 8 8 out of 10, and I as a customer, yeah, I like what you do, I'll buy from you, and I like what they do, sometimes I'll buy from them, I'll I'll have a portfolio. Uh Whereas, if you can make me score 10 out of 10, chances are none of your competitors are are scoring 10 out of 10, um, because satisfaction is a bit of a a relative measure. So if you can make me score 10 out of 10, I'll probably buy almost always from you, and that therefore leads to disproportionate amounts of profit.
1: And would link to the phrase
0: passive if you think net promoter Absolutely. score. I think Absolutely. it is quite a, yeah. you know, well, I think that's the origin of the, the net promoter kind of mindset, really. Yeah,
1: I, I, I think you know, you gave the complete research answer. You need the data to see the model, it will depend on the market, the competition, and all those sort of things. Um, one of the things that I sometimes notice is a little bit of a Um, a distraction the world of customer satisfaction is great for having red herrings in and everyone can prove their own little theories matter but I think a word of warning is sometimes you get that scenario where someone says hey look at this customer they scored us 9 or 10 out of 10 and they've left Mm. and gone to someone else is it worth bothering and look at this customer they were really unhappy with us complained scored us 3 out of 10 and you know what they've stayed with us Mm. And I think you've really got to be careful of saying, okay, you know, those scenarios happen, but they're oddities, they're extremes, you know, that isn't how 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 the bulk of people um, the bulk of people think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, I think once you start getting to eight out of ten and you sort of got over, yeah, customers matter, I think some more things come into is it worth getting to nine out of ten? And sometimes it's looking, I think, at even the, besides the loyalty behaviours of a nine, how much more likely are they to do all those positive actions? Mm -hmm. You know, 70% more likely rather than 30% more likely. Hey, it's worth moving from an eight to a nine. You know, how less price sensitive are they? Or 20% compared to 10%. You can quantify all that if, if you have the numbers that you say. I think the other thing is sometimes picking up metrics like inbound code, um, inbound phone calls, complaints, cost to service. Certainly, in, you know, with some of my clients, some of the biggest savings are saying, "Hey, do you know if we have this customer satisfaction at you ninety know, percent, they're quite cheap and efficient to service. If they're at eighty percent, they're still clunky and costly to service. Our bottom line can improve, our costs can re- can reduce. We can employ fewer people in our contact centre because we're going to have fewer inbound calls if we have satisfied customers." and that seems to a- appeal again to the short
0: term hmm. mindset which i find quite a powerful quite a powerful link yeah i think that's a very good point i think you know those kind of non-linear links this is something we'll come back to towards the end of the book actually but those kind of non-straight line links between your performance between customer attitudes between cust- attitudes and behaviours and between customer behaviours and your costs and profit um just pop up again and again and again and it's always worth bearing that in mind that we we have to think about not a straight line uh, if you get a little bit better you get a little bit more reward is often get a bit better nothing happens get a bit better nothing happens get a bit better huge reward um in that third or fourth year that you mentioned yeah.
1: sort of gradually then suddenly really you know you know really would be a phrase that springs that springs to mind yeah indeed it would a lot of the book is going to sort of spend um, time talking about the subtleties that really get into that measurement, and that's the reason why, because there are a lot of subtleties. But I think probably you know a fundamental of the whole principle is the lens of the customer versus the lens of the you know of the organisation. You know, the criteria you have to judge yourself against is the same criteria that customers are judging you against. It's the natural step from perception is reality. And I think it's a big part of moving from an eight to a nine. You can probably get to an eight looking internally Mm. with some good management data. But to start getting from an eight to a nine, you've probably got to start seeing the world through the lens of your
0: of your customer. 100% 100% agree with that. Yeah, and I think the the probably the best um, or the biggest symptom you see of that in particularly in business to business surveys, um, there's a trend probably starting about five or ten years ago and, and still ongoing really, for everyone to to trans want to transition from being a, a product company to a service company. Yeah. So they'd, they'd all be saying, we, we, you know, we're not a, a widget manufacturer. We're a provider of end to end widget solutions. Um, And you go and talk to companies, to, to customers, and they would say we just want someone who provides good quality widgets, devilism on time, fair cost, and invoicing to work. Not want to form a
1: relationship with them?
0: They might want a relationship then. There's lots of things around, there's lots of customer experience stuff around the widget but what I don't want to do is manage it all through your software and allow you to be my end-to-end solution provider. Yeah. So Some people do, and you know, yeah. if, if they do, that's great, but, but I think it's the, the starting point of what we want to do rather than what customers want from us, which is indicative of a kind of wishful thinking rather than actually what our customer's interested in. Yeah, and I think a
1: fundamental of this is particularly in successful businesses where we have been doing very well for years, we understand our market, we understand our products, is actually taking that step back and saying, so what are customers assessing us against? And sometimes customers, you know, you have to interview them in a certain way to get them to articulate what they want. I suggest most people who buy drills you know, isn't isn't because they like drills or they've got a collection of drills or they like the sound that drills makes or the fact they're really good machinery. They buy a drill because they want a hole in the wall or actually they want to hang something up. So, you know, a competitor to a drill might be something that helps you hang something up, you know, and it is really seeing that end use benefit to the customer of which you're part of that chain. Um, Uh, And and that's not always easy to do. I think is is what I'm waffling around. No,
0: it's not. And I think and the key thing really is, I think with with qualitative research and and that's what we're talking about to understand the lens of the customer. With qualitative research in general, it's always about digging deeper. So it's not what customers say; it's listening for the thing behind what customers say. Um, yeah. it, it goes back to that old Henry Ford quote, you know, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, they'd have said faster horses. <laughs> what's the fundamental need? The, fast, the fundamental need is to go faster. Um, so if you listen correctly, if you understand the fundamental need, then, then research lets you understand what matters to customers. Um, and that's, that's what it's all about, understanding what's important.
1: Because customer satisfaction is about doing best what matters most to customers doing best what matters most. I think that nicely moves us on to probably the next chapter that we'll be doing because if we're going to judge ourselves against perception, we've certainly got to ensure we ask the right questions and that's what we'll pick up in
0: our next podcast. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Uh, you can find us online uh, at tlfresearch.com and on Twitter at TLF Research. Um, If you listen to podcasts on iTunes, please find us there. Subscribe, rate and review us. um, And yeah, see you next time.